Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Living Truth. We're glad you're here. Not that many weeks ago, I was out at a Love Life rally at Low Park across from Riverside Planned Parenthood. And uh, it was uh, multiple churches coming together on that day. And uh, I had the privilege of leading a prayer of repentance uh, for the church and the nation as it relates to this issue. And right across the street from this park is Planned Parenthood in Riverside where abortions take place um, you know, pretty much every single day. And it's a sad, dark place. But Love Life, what Love Life does is it's not a protest, it's a prayer rally. And we peacefully assemble in the name of Jesus. We bring light and truth to this issue and we pray. And Love Life did a great job of taking us past Planned Parenthood and then on to Riverside Life Services, which is really down the alley from Planned Parenthood. So there's a crisis pregnancy center within a softball throw of Planned Parenthood. And you can see the spiritual battle, the light and darkness going on. Love Life did a great job of telling us statistics and facts about this issue in our country. As we went to Riverside Life Services, we had a chance to hear what they go through every day and how they battle for life and they pray and they uh, hope and pray that people will make the right decision and choose life. That doesn't always happen. But Love Life is also there for women who have unplanned pregnancies and they have uh, th things like churches adopting a young woman who decides for life and coming alongside her. And even someone who may you know, have gone through an abortion and just needs the hope of the gospel. This is the job of the church. So Love Life, we are partnering with Love Life on February the 11th. We are doing a uh, time of prayer. And it is going to be Living Truth Christian Fellowship that's gathered with Love Life. They do it every week. A different church is out there every single week, all 52 weeks of the year. We are the church launching this year. And so I see that as a great privilege for us. And we need all of you to come and stand together. So would you be willing to stand on that day and not just say that you believe something, but actually take a stand? Uh, when I uh, led that prayer, it was kind of a wet uh, morning. It was cold, and there were hundreds of people out there, and people got down on their knees. Nearly everybody in that crowd who could kneel knelt down. And we, we asked for God to forgive the church. We asked for God to forgive our nation for all the innocent blood that has been shed in this nation. And I'm not trying to bag on anybody who's been through an abortion. All I'm saying is this, that the light of truth needs to continue to shine on this issue so that we can once and for all see this end in our country. This has really been a stain on our country. So if you want to be part of this, we are going to fast the Wednesday before, and we are going to assemble from 9 to 11 in the morning at Low Park, and just be a presence of light in that very dark place. Would you be willing to join us and stand together? I hope you will. I'll be there. Several of our leaders will be there. We'll have a time of worship and prayer, and we'll stand together. And we'll do it the right way, peacefully, uh, but still seeking the Lord. Amen? Amen? All right, so mark your calendar for that. We're in the book of Matthew. Uh, we're moving verse by verse through the book of Matthew, and we are talking about the kingdom of light. Matthew chapter 4, as we continue to move through the chapters of Matthew, we have called the larger study, the gospel of the kingdom. And there's going to be three points, three main points that I'd like to share with you in this message. We're going to look at the light of the king, if you're taking notes, and I'll go over these one more time. The light of the king, the call of the king, and our response to the king. Three points, the light of the king, the call of the king and our response to the king. The text is Matthew 4, beginning in verse 12. Let's pick it up together. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, Matthew 4, 13. Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Would you pray with me? Father, as we study the word of God, the word is light. And the psalmist prayed that you would illumine his darkness, Lord. We live in a dark world. Sometimes we look within and we can see that even our hearts can betray us. And we, we see here a picture of a people sitting in the shadow of death. And I can't help but think of Psalm 23 and uh, how even when we deal with the shadows of death, your light shines, the hope of the gospel shines. And I pray that today as we look at our great king, the king of light, the king of glory, that you would illumine our souls, Lord, and you would show us what you want us to see and draw us closer to our king. And if we don't know him, help us to meet him for the first time today. Thank you so much for the light that you give us. Light is such a great gift. We don't think about it much, but you're the God of light. You're the one that said, let there be light, and there was light. We live in a place like Southern California where we have so many sunny days, but even that we can't take for granted. Would you show us the light of truth? Show us who you are. Make us a little bit more like you because we've been here. We pray all of that in Jesus' mighty name, all God's people said. Amen. First of all, we see the light of the king. Now, Verse 12, Matthew 4, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, John the Baptist is the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He was the herald of the king, and he came to bear witness to the light. If you hold your place in Matthew just for a second and turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We have the record of Jesus before the manger, this takes us all the way back to the very beginning, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. This is all pointing to Jesus. John 1, 2. He was in the beginning with God. Notice all things, all things came into being through him, John 1, 3. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. The light entered our dark world, and the herald of the light was John the Baptist. And John began to preach, as you know, and he preached a baptism of repentance and preparation. The king is coming. Uh, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And so John, when he was asked, well, who are you? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? No, 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 no. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Get prepared because the Messiah is coming. And so John bore witness to the light. The chapter goes on to say these words regarding the light of Jesus. Verse 12, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, that is Jesus, became flesh. He was incarnated there in Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his light, or his glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The light of God arrived. Flip over to John chapter 3 for a moment. This is what Jesus says about this subject of his entering in the world. John 3.16 puts it this way, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 3, 18. He who believes in him and Jesus is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men, sadly, a loved darkness rather than light 
for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And so here's the the story. The light of the world is Jesus. He comes into a darkened world, heralded by John the Baptist. And he is light of light, God of God. Uh, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1 tells us. So the God of light came into our dark and broken world, He came into the world, into Israel, at a time when Israel was under Roman occupation, being dominated by Rome, uh, wondering if deliverance would ever come, and the Messiah arrived in the very history in which we are embedded. We can go back and mark the calendar of the world by his arrival. We have facts that surround his incarnation and those who interacted with him. And today we're going to see the story about the handoff, if you will, from John the Baptist to Jesus. And uh, if you flip back over to Matthew 4 for a moment, let's just take a look at that first verse for a second in verse 12. Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody and he withdrew into Galilee. Matthew 4, 12. Now, the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and when you hear the word synoptic, if you've ever come across that, it means that they're similar in content. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not, it's not exact, but they tell a very similar story. The only one that doesn't, that's unique from the synoptics, is John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all pick up uh, the ministry of Jesus from this point, moving from the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness to this moment when he withdraws into Galilee with a slight variation in the Gospel of Luke. And what has happened here, and this is important for you to understand, is that the Gospel of Matthew is not chronological, but in many cases topical. And from the temptation of Jesus till this moment, about a year has gone by. So you you need to know that for your chronology as you study the Bible, that a lot of events have occurred, but the synoptic writers have chosen not to highlight those while John has highlighted them. Let me give you an example. We learn that before Jesus came preaching repentance and called two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they had already met him. In fact, Jesus, according to John 1, had already renamed Peter. He said, you're Simon, I will call you Peter. Simon means something like to hear from the name Simeon. Peter means, do you remember? Rock. So he's already met the Messiah. These two sets of brothers have already received John's baptism, likely somewhere around a year before. They were John's disciples. They've already recognized Jesus as the Messiah, but they go back fishing, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So a lot of things have happened as... uh, A year goes by before John is finally thrown into prison and John was testifying to the Messiah. During the first year of Jesus' ministry, John continued to preach. Their two ministries overlapped. As John's work began to phase out, John famously said, he must increase, I must decrease. So upon hearing of John's arrest, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. He'll do this, uh, we'll see this again in Matthew 14, 13, where John's death will cause him to withdraw again. John will languish in a prison for about a year. And uh, at this time, John had been taken into custody under Herod Antipas, thrown in a dungeon. And you will remember that uh, Herodias, his wife, uh, convinces him through a seductive dance of his daughter. And we'll, we'll get the story later, but basically John the Baptist loses his head for calling Herod out for his sin and confronting a political leader of his day. And upon hearing that Jesus, or that John was taken into custody, Jesus withdrew, not because he was afraid, but because he was working according to God's timeline. And so this is a little bit of the backdrop. There's one other thing I want you to see, and it's in uh, 
Luke's gospel. Let's turn over to Luke 4 for a second. One other stop that Jesus makes in this year is to his own hometown. And he goes into the synagogue at Nazareth, Luke 4. You can see that, just to pick up the connection in the synoptic gospels, the temptation of Jesus is in verses 1 through 12 in Luke 4. Matthew 4 and Luke 4 both have the temptation. We studied that last week. It ends this way, Luke 4, 12. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil had finished every temptation. He left him until a more opportune time. Look at Luke 4, 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread throughout all the surrounding district and began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue and on the Sabbath, he stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. This is all coming from Isaiah 61 to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now Jesus begins to share some things, and for the sake of time, we won't go into all of those, but as he begins to share some things, the people are not real happy about what Jesus has to say. And they arose, verse 29, same section, cast him out of the city, led him to the brow of a hill, of the hill on which their city had been built, in order to throw him down the cliff. Talk about a welcome in your own hometown, huh? Can you imagine going into your hometown church? You read a few scriptures, you say, uh, today this is fulfilled, and they say, uh, we've got an escort for you. <laughs> where? Where are we going? We're going to get lunch? Oh, no. We're taking you to the edge of town. And they wanted to throw him off the brow of their hill in their own hometown. Scholars have pointed out that um, Jesus is the scapegoat. And in scapegoat imagery on the Day of Atonement, they had two goats. Uh, one goat would be slaughtered for the nation, and one goat would be literally called the scapegoat. And the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat and he would confess the sins of the nation. They would release that goat out into the wilderness as a picture of God sending the people's sins away. Unfortunately, just like a good dog, uh, the, the goat often would turn around and come back to the temple area, ruining the picture because he was supposed to be carrying the sins of the people symbolically, if you will. And when he came back, it'd be like, oh no, (laughs) this ruins the picture. And so what they started to do is they would lead the scapegoat to the brow of a hill and they would throw him off to make sure he died and didn't return. Now, some of you who are animal lovers are saying, that's brutal. I get it. I get what you're saying. But here's the point. Jesus is the ultimate scapegoat. And the people of his own hometown looked to throw him off the brow of the hill in fulfillment of scapegoat imagery. And so here's what happens. But passing through their midst, verse 30, Luke 4, because of course he wasn't going to die this way. It wasn't his time. He went his way and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So what's interesting is you, is you begin to backfill some of the uh, things that occurred during this year that Jesus, uh, that ministry was going on, not recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There were several things that did go on. A few snapshots. Jesus uh, does the, the miracle of the water into wine at the, the wedding at Cana of Galilee. He cleanses the temple in John chapter 2. He has an inner encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We read some of that leading up to that encounter. And in John chapter 4, he meets the woman at the well. So there was a lot that went on in that year. Matthew's purpose is not to highlight those things. You may ask why as you turn back to Matthew 4. I think scholars would say because it doesn't directly relate to Jesus' kingship that Matthew is developing. 
And so these things are left uh, to be picked up in the Gospel of John and as we just read in the Gospel of Luke. And so Jesus now uh, withdraws into Galilee. He leaves Nazareth. We just saw that in Luke 4. He got basically uh, escorted out, although they wanted to kill him. He left Nazareth. This is Matthew 4, 13. Came and settled in Capernaum, his adopted hometown. If you go to Israel, Capernaum is right by the Sea of Galilee. It's a coastal town. And it's called the adopted home of Jesus because Jesus basically got booted out of his own hometown. So Capernaum became his adopted hometown. And so there he is in that area. He settles there, which is by the sea, notice. The region, the ancient tribes that were up there were Zebulun and Naphtali. And they were located, they were given land between the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel and the Mediterranean Sea. So I don't have a map in front of you right now, but, but basically... Uh, those two tribes settled in the north, and this was their territory. And so here is Jesus now, and uh, he has come up into the northern part of Israel, into the area of Galilee. And this was prophetic. This was to fulfill, notice, what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. We've seen these, these references several times in the birth narratives. Now, as Jesus is older, he's also fulfilling ministry. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, verse 15. You probably have this in all caps in your Bible or italicized because it's a, it's a quote. Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land of, and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now, this particular Reference is from Isaiah chapter 9. So let's turn over there for a second. Look at the book of Isaiah. We'll try to put it up on the screen if we can. And as you go there, let me give you a little bit of the, the backdrop of this famous prophecy. So uh, Israel as a nation has had a lot of ungodly leadership. And the position of the nation of Israel is, is interesting from a geographic and military standpoint. Above Israel is a nation called Syria, also known as ancient Aram, Aram. Then up to the northeast was a nation called Assyria. They were a, a dominant war machine. And below Israel was a nation called Egypt, which is still there today. What happened as you studied the geography is these uh, nations would often war with one another, Assyria, Syria, and Egypt. And Israel was in between these nations. Sometimes a king would go and lose a battle in Egypt, come through Israel, because that's the way they would go back to their homeland, and be angry and just destroy things in Israel just because they were mad or pouting. Oh, I lost my battle, so I'll destroy your temple then. <laughs> where, where, where? And poor Israel became a punching bag for these leaders, if, if you ever listen to someone who really knows the geography of that area, they'll tell you that many things that happened in that area were, a, were basically a result of their geography. At this time, there's a king named Ahaz, and Ahaz is an ungodly king, and he's ruling Judah, the southern part of the nation, and it's a divided nation. Two tribes in the south, ten in the north, two different sets of kings. Ahaz is the king of Judah at this time. Syria... Uh, and Israel, so two nations next to each other, have made an alliance and they're going to attack the south. And Ahaz is afraid. Everybody's freaking out. And he goes and he, he walks out and he checks the water supply because in ancient warfare, if an army could destroy your water supply, they, they could easily defeat you. So he's checking the water supply and Isaiah, the prophet, walks out to him. And Isaiah begins to tell him, don't trust he, he wants to make an alliance with Assyria because Assyria is a stronger nation. They're a war machine. So maybe if he allies himself with, with Assyria, then Syria and Ephraim or Syria and Israel, Assyria can help him out in that battle. Well, Isaiah the prophet goes and warns him and says, don't you do that. Don't you make an alliance with, those, with that nation because they're ungodly and it's not going to go well. You trust the Lord. And he says these words, ask the Lord for a sign and he'll give it to you. It could be as high as the heavens or as low as Sheol. And Ahaz says, no, I won't ask. 
You won't ask for a sign, the prophet says. Okay, then the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. And his name shall be called, remember, Emmanuel, which means God with us. You won't ask for a sign, I'll give you a sign. So Ahaz continues in his rebellion and the nation doesn't turn to God. Pick up the account. This is Isaiah 8. There's much I could share with you, but look at verse 17. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, Isaiah the prophet is speaking. I and the children whom the Lord has given me, Isaiah 8.18, their names were prophetic as well, his kids, are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion, 8.19 of Isaiah. And when you say, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Should they practice necromancy? Should they go to occultists? Should they go to mediums to try to find out what to do? No! Why? Because this is the nation aligned with Almighty God. This is the nation that made a covenant with God at Sinai. This was the nation that was told, don't you get mixed up in the ungodly practices of the nations round about you. Don't you consult mediums and witches and the dead. You don't do that stuff. God has forbidden that stuff, but they did it nonetheless. And so to the law and the testimony, to the testimony, if they do not speak, Verse 20, according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. There's no light in them. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. It will turn out when they are hungry, they will be enraged. Rather than looking up to God, when they do look up, they will curse their king and their God as they face upward. A surprising response, isn't it? For a nation who had the light of God, that when wartime comes and things are tough, they don't turn to God and say, would you bless us? Would you, we're going to repent. We're going to ask you to save us. No, no, no. They begin to curse God. Now, this is the nation of Israel, folks. This is God's people. This is what can happen when the negative influences and the darkness of this world uh, brings lies and falsehood. And so look what happens. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress. And darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be driven away into darkness. And I think for any of you who have studied the Old Testament, you know it didn't go very well. Because Assyria did destroy the northern kingdom and uh, Babylon did destroy the southern kingdom. And, and God let his people swim in the consequences of their rejection. He basically said, if you don't want my light, then you'll get the darkness of what is coming. And it came. And in the middle of all this bummer news, the, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah often does this. There'll be some really hard, uh, staggering truth, and then all of a sudden a light will come. Here, t- take a look. But, 9-1, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm here for a reason. This is your quote from Isaiah 9 to Matthew 4. So this is where it comes from. Take a look. The people who, were wa- who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice with the divide when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, all the war that has happened, all the blood and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Notice, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. He will be the ultimate king. He will not be like King Ahaz. His name will be called. Oh, we all know it, don't we? It's Christmas again. Here we are. Wonderful counselor, 
mighty God. There'll be no confusion, no darkness in him. He'll be the mighty God. He is the mighty God. He'll be eternal father, prince of shalom, prince of peace. No more chaos, no more disorder, no more darkness, no more confusion. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's a good time for an amen. Amen. Hallelujah. What God is saying is, even though you turned upward and cursed me, you turned to the spiritists, you turned to necromancy, you turned to witchcraft, I'm sending my son. I'm going to send a light into your darkness. That prophecy was written 700 years before this moment. In history in Matthew chapter 4. Let's turn back there. And so Galilee of the Gentiles. You say, well, why, does it, why is it called Galilee of the Gentiles if it's in the northern part of Israel? Here's why. Because when Assyria took the northern parts in that area of Galilee, the people were deported and many of them killed. And intermarriage occurred up there. And so the the people who lived in the Jerusalem area, you can think of the scholars and people who are near the temple. When they looked to the north, as beautiful as it is up there and as beautiful as the Sea of Galilee region is, they saw them as outcasts. They saw them as being intermarried, mixed with Gentiles, which simply means non-Jews. And so it was almost like they saw Galilee like a place, maybe we would say hick town. We know your accent up there. You guys are just a bunch of country bumpkins up there. There's no scholars up there. The big wigs, the, the academia, the, the people who are in the know, the scholars, they're all at Jerusalem. They're in the south, man. Those people up north. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Yeah, I'd say. But that's how they looked at that area up there. There was hatred and a divide. And, and it's true in our world today. There's people who look at certain regions and they have disdain for that region because it's known for something or people are a certain way. And where does Jesus go to pick his hand-picked first set of disciples? Does he go to Jerusalem? Does he pick Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel? Does he pick, uh, you know, The religious elite, does he call upon Caiaphas, the high priest? No. Do you know who he picks? Fishermen. From the detested area of Galilee. (laughs) For real? Yep. Because God delights in using the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I have a feeling That's why most of us are here today. (laughs) Can I get a witness? You don't have to say it really loud, you know. Maybe look at your neighbor, amen. (laughs) That's why I'm standing here. Because the Lord reached into my darkness. Now, I was raised with the things of God, but I got away from the things of God. And I would categorize my decisions from you know, my early teen years into my early 20s is not full of much light. Anybody else out there like me? You know, I made a lot of mistakes. I I didn't always think about what I was doing. I wouldn't categorize it as dark decision-making. But it brought a level of darkness into my life because it was void of God's light. It was void of God's truth. Even if I knew intellectually God's truth, I certainly wasn't living by it. And Jesus comes into this area to fulfill prophecy. He moves into this area called Galilee of the Gentiles. Back in Matthew 4, you can see in verse 16, there's that quote, the the people who were uh, sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. Uh, This area was known as the land of death. The shadow of death. I've got some bad news for you. We're all sitting in the shadow of death. Do you realize that? We all have a destiny with our mortality. We don't necessarily want to think about it. 
But that's the reality of our sin. The wages of our sin is death. We're in a fallen, broken world. And if you're past the age of 25, uh, you're deteriorating. (laughs) I wanted to say that as nicely as I could. You're falling apart, man. Sorry. (laughs) You're like, come on, Pastor Michael, give me some good news. We'll get to some good news in a minute. But here's the thing. We're all battling the decay of a sin-cursed world. We live in the shadow of it. We don't always want to talk about it or look at it. We're a death-denying culture, frankly. But, but we face it. And we face it really every day of our lives. So into that kind of setting, into that geography, into that thought process comes Messiah. Simeon, when he held the baby Jesus, he took Jesus into his arms, Luke 2.28. He blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you let your servant, your bondservant, depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. When you look at Jesus' movements in uh, the opening verses, just take a look for a moment. You're going to see several place names. You see, verse 12, Galilee. Look at verse 13. You see Nazareth. You see a place called Capernaum. You see the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, skip down to verses 23 and tw- through 25. Just for a moment, you'll see some other place names. You're going to see... Uh, Galilee, look at verse 25, a place called the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and a place beyond the Jordan. When you map this out, what you see is every corner of Israel is located in these verses. The northeast of the Sea of Galilee, uh, the northwest, the northeast, the southwest and the southeast, all four quadrants of the nation are here. Now, I just want to give you a picture for a second. I had mentioned to you when we looked at the baptism of Jesus that the King James and New King James Version mentioned that the place is not Bethany, but a place called Bethbara. Some of you will remember this. I mentioned to you that Bethbara can mean crossing place. If this is true, that Jesus was baptized opposite Jericho in the southern part of the nation, The first city that Joshua was to take was Jericho. Jesus gets baptized, heads into the promised land, and his light goes to every corner of the nation. He is the new Joshua. He has come to fulfill the fallen footsteps of Israel by taking the land, conquering it, but not, not with a sword, but with love. He's come to conquer it as the new Joshua. His name, by the way, the Greek name Jesus is Joshua in Hebrew. He's the new Joshua come to bring light to all the corners of the nation of Israel to fulfill where they failed because they never really fully took the promised land and they didn't take it because of one thing. You know what it is? Unbelief. Disobedience. And Jesus continues to fulfill God's redemptive plan for mankind. He succeeds where they failed and where we have failed. Because oftentimes we are drawn sadly away from the light of Christ. And so the light comes, the the person of Jesus Christ shines upon people sitting in darkness. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you are sensing darkness in your life. If you're at a dark place, wherever you may be, the light of Christ can shine upon you. I believe that he delights in going into dark places. That's why he called prostitutes and tax collectors and outcasts like fishermen and and others. Why? Because he shines in dark places. And we are the light of the world. We'll see this in Matthew 5, 16. And we're to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works 
and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Amen? Amen. So here's the thing. As the church, can you hear a moment of challenge? Would to God that we don't just sit in church buildings on Sundays. And this is what I see in this congregation. I see light. What is light? It speaks of truth. It speaks of hope. It speaks of love. It, it, it speaks of a, a people shining Christ's light. And I see you doing that. I see you doing that in your workplace. I see you doing that when people walk in and they're brand new. And they tell us about the love that they feel here about the authenticity. None of us are trying to say we've arrived. We're rejoicing in the gospel, amen? We're rejoicing in the king of light. So here comes Jesus, and he settles by the sea in a place called Capernaum. You can, you can visit this place today. Jesus goes fishing. <laughs> I have a very bad record on fishing. I believe that fish have a conspiracy against me. In fact, the only time I've ever so-called caught a fish, a friend of mine caught it, handed me the pole so a picture could be taken in falsehood. <laughs> as though I had caught the fish. I did not catch the fish. Fish are in rebellion toward me. I do not believe fishing is a sport. I'm sorry to offend some of you. But anything that you can do from a chair drinking a beverage is not a sport. <laughs> all right, that's all I got to say about that. But anyway... <laughs> Just offended half the congregation right there. Sorry about that. Now, Jesus is going fishing, but he's, going to, he's about to fish for some of the inner circle of the kingdom. Notice what happens. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Jesus was a preacher. That does my heart good. Greek word for preach is caruso. It means to proclaim, especially divine truth. What did Jesus say? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1.15 has it, repent and believe the gospel. Out of the gate, of course, a year into the three and a half years that Jesus ministered on the earth, he calls people to repent. I think that repentance is what he was essentially saying to the first followers as well, which we'll see in a moment. What does repent mean? The Greek word repent is metanoia, and it, and it means this. It means to have a change of mind, a change of direction. Here's a good way to think about it. It's moving away from formal loyal, former loyalties to loyalty to the king of kings. It's that the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom is your first allegiance. It doesn't mean that you're still not a fisherman for some or a carpenter or a businessman, but it means that your first allegiance also, we could talk about countries. You're an American. You're a patriot. That's good. But your first allegiance is still to the kingdom of God. The only kingdom that's going to last, by the way. Countries come and go. Kings come and go. Rulers come and go. They rise up for a short time and then they're gone. They have one thing in common. They're temporary. And that's the good news of when things aren't going well in elections. <laughs> the way our country is set up anyway. We won't go there for right now. <laughs> Repent. Why, why turn around? Why have a change of heart, mind, change of allegiance? Why do a 180? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If ever that were true, it's now. I mean now as in the text. Because the king of the kingdom was walking by the sea. And he says, look, it's time to turn around. What if Peter and Andrew said, nah, I, I, I prefer minnows over men, <laughs> salmon over souls. Uh, I think I'll stick with the fishing business. People annoy me, by the way. I mean, I, I prefer fishing. I can be away from people. I don't have to deal with people. I feel you. <laughs> However, <laughs> only do that temporarily. The king was on a mission I want you to think for a moment. What if Peter and Andrew said no? So, you know, you could wrestle with this theologically, but what if they said no? What would Peter have missed? Oh yeah, Peter had some lows, right? We, we all know the lows in Peter's life, but think of the miracles, the life-changing destiny that occurred by that call. The light of the king. Second point, the call of the king. Jesus is calling 
for repentance. That comes from the Lord. And by the way, repentance is not just for non-believers. He says repent to several churches in the book of Revelation. Repentance is also for a believer. What do we need to repent from? False loyalties, dark spaces that still exist in our hearts, etc. We need to change our mind. And we need to follow. And Jesus is walking by the sea. I want you to connect verse 17 with the rest. And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. The word saw means he saw them with discernment or insight. Simon, who was called Peter. Jesus had changed his name in John 1. And Andrew, which is a Greek name, and I might speak of that mixed area up in the north, his brother. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus famously said to them, Follow me, and I will make you, Mark's Gospel says, I will make you become Fishers of men. Now, fishermen uh, may be uniquely gifted for an evangelistic call because casting a net can be a bit arduous and uh, you, most of the time you can't see what's happening underneath the water, so you have to be patient and you have to be strategic. And I don't know if any of those factors have to do with why Jesus called fishermen, but Jesus' call is clear and it's emphatic, it's in the form of a command. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Some of you are like, you know what? Evangelism is not my gift, and uh, fishing for souls is not really what I do. Let me just say this. If you follow Jesus, you will become a fisher of men and women. He'll make you become that. Now, hear what I'm saying. I don't believe everybody in the church is called to street evangelism. But every one of us, with the light of Jesus as we follow him, will get opportunities. At work, in your family, at school, there will be a light in you. And someone inevitably is going to ask you, what's going on with you? How is it that you don't do this or you respond in this way to this difficult situation or whatever it is? And you're going to have some opportunity. And so, follow me. I want you to make it personal. Follow me. Jesus says, don't follow me on Instagram, <laughs> Twitter. No, not talking about that. But let me ask you a question. Who do you follow? What are you paying close attention to these days? What's the first thing that you go, oh, oh, whoa. That's scrolling. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Ever get yourself in trouble scrolling? All God's people said, ouch. There's a lot of good out there and a lot of not so good. Who are you following? You follow Jesus? Is your first move to the light of Scripture, light of truth, prayer, worship, or follow me? And I'll make you become what you couldn't become on your own. Peter, Andrew, did they have some special gift? Is that why he chose them? No, they were outcasts. They were looked down upon. They, they weren't the best theologians of their day. Yeah, they, they probably knew, knew the Bible because they were trained as kids, but they weren't the cream of the crop. But Jesus said, if you follow me, I'll make you become something. And immediately, look at verse 20, what did they do? They left their nets and followed him. I don't know what you may need to leave to fully follow Christ. I don't believe that the Bible is saying that everyone who follows Christ has to leave their business. That's not what's here. I believe this is first allegiance. They will leave their business for a time, but this is first allegiance. By the way, Peter was married according to 1 Corinthians 9. So he had, he had some decisions to make. These were not easy things to start traveling around with a rabbi. Um, you know, who was obviously a very polarizing figure. And so he went on from there. Now you have Peter and Andrew with him. And he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father. They were mending their nets, and he called them. These two sets of brothers, many believe, were in partners in the fishing business. The four of them combined with dad and they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him 
Now, we don't know how Zebedee responded. I think the Chosen has tried to paint a picture of a positive response from Zebedee. We just don't know. If you're a dad with two strong sons in a fishing business and they decide to follow a rabbi for the next couple of years, mm, I don't know. <laughs> now, if Zebedee knew who Jesus was and he was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, then he might have said, this is a glorious opportunity. Go, boys. If he was thinking humanly, business-wise, ow, my back hurts after all these years of fishing. I need you guys. Might have been, <laughs> I don't know. But nonetheless, they left their nets. Just one other side point. See the word for mending there in verse 21? It's katartizo in Greek. It's the word used in Ephesians 4.12 for equipping the saints. When we uh, preach the gospel and equip the saints, we mend people. We don't do the mending. The, the, the Lord does it, but you know what I'm saying. Broken people walk into church doors all the time, and that's a good thing. And they get mended, and they get encouraged. And they, they left those nets. I, I don't know if something may be entangling you. You can categorize it metaphorically as a net. Whatever it may be, it ain't worth it. Let it go and follow him. So Jesus was going about in all Galilee. Notice what he was up to. Now you can imagine these guys following him around and he was teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the gospel. He was a preacher. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. We've called that, that's our overall series title, the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every kind or all manner of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria. His fame spread ESV through all Syria to the north of Israel and some of the region in Israel. And they brought to Jesus all who were ill, Look at this list. Taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, that's demon-possessed people, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, that's the, literally the 10 cities originally built by Alexander the Great, and Jerusalem and Judea, even in the south, and from beyond the Jordan, probably the area of John's baptism. Great multitudes were coming to the king of glory, the king of light, and he was touching people. Can you imagine Peter and Andrew, James and John, they, they made a decision, they packed a, a bag, see you later, dad, see you later, wife, went on with Jesus, and could they have imagined what they would see? Demon-possessed people coming up, and Jesus sang to demons, be gone! And out they go, and people screaming. Who knows what was going on? Paralytics carried up. No wheelchairs in, the, in that day. Carried on mats to the master. Rise up and walk. And people were getting up. Can you imagine the joy? People with aches and pains. Can I get a witness? People with aches and pains. Where does it hurt? Well, this is the only place it doesn't hurt. But, uh, you know, if you can do anything about these particular areas, right? And he touched them, and pain left their body. Can you imagine the rejoicing, paralytics, people who had seizures, epileptics. You know, some, some of you wrestle with that, or you know people who do, who have seizures, and, and it could be a hard thing to deal with. And he touched them, and the seizures stopped. And great multitudes, his fame was spreading. People were saying, this guy says a word and demons leave people. This guy touches lepers and blind people and lame people and they walk and they see. Could this be Messiah? This is the early part of the Gospel of Matthew. And can you imagine? Here you are. Should we stay or should we go? Yeah, I think we'll go. Life has changed forever. In the last three decades that I've lived on this earth, I've had the privilege of preaching the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what I'll tell you. In ministry, sometimes I've seen the depths of life, the hardest things of life. But I've known heights that perhaps few people get the privilege of knowing. And I'm not trying to puff myself up. I'm just saying, when you preach the word of God as regularly as I do, my wife and I were talking, and she said, how many sermons do you think you've preached over the last 25 years? And I'm like, woo-wee. Some I'd like to forget, but uh, thousands. I have preached 
thousands of sermons. Sermons are going out on the radio. They're going out in 26 countries on podcasts. I don't even know on a daily basis what's going on. The Lord uses weak, fragile, foolish people like me simply because he said, follow me. Follow me. I'll make you fisher of men and women. Follow me. I'll change your life. For those of you who have really made a commitment to Christ, can I tell you, have you marked the time? There's nothing like following him. Now you all know that it isn't the, necessarily the easiest life, but it's the right life. I've hit a lot of crossroads in my life, a lot, of, a lot of times when I'm like, Lord, are you sure you got the right guy? I'm not sure I can do this. Why me? All, all this stuff. But in the end, I want you to imagine standing in the sandals of a Peter and just going, what have I been selected for? To walk with him. And then you guys know what happens in the book of Acts. Jesus ascends. And Peter is preaching in the middle of the city that he fell on his face. And thousands of people are coming to the Lord. How's that possible for a fisherman from a nowhere town? Because the Lord calls people like you and me. Amen? The light of the king. The call of the king. The response, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen? Amen? Turn around. All former allegiances need to be secondary in light of who he is. Father, thank you for the privilege of the word of God to dive into it, to see the beauty of its majesty, the way the Holy Spirit breathed it out so that we can take it in. We need to hear that call afresh. I need to hear it. Turn, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Lord, we're uh, so blessed and so privileged to know that you have called us. You would say later to the apostles, you didn't choose me, I chose you, that you would go and bear fruit, that your fruit would remain. We, we see these men and we know that they're already committed to God. We know that they followed John's baptism, that their hearts were soft. Yet a very clear call came from Messiah. Follow me. And I'm sure they had moments when they, they were thinking, you know, what, what have I chosen here? What, where am I? What am I doing? But they had to have moments, Lord, I'm sure probably on a daily basis where they were just blown away at your power, your authority, your goodness, your grace, your light. You're the God of hope. You're the God of truth. You're the God of light. Would you keep your heart bowed just for a moment? If you've not met this God of light, he will rescue you from the darkness of sin. He will transfer you into the kingdom of his beloved son. But you, you have to have a moment when you decide to say yes. Some of you have heard this before. Follow me. And you said no, or you weren't ready. But he calls. And the, the proper response is to turn and say, Lord Jesus, I'm just going to follow. I don't have all the answers, and I don't even know what a day is going to bring, but today I'm going to follow you. Teach us to follow, O oh Lord. If that's you today, you can formalize this in a prayer. Lord, I, I want to follow you and, and I'm repenting of my sin. I'm repenting of all allegiances that were above you or alongside of you. Teach me to follow you. You're the good shepherd. I want to follow you. Teach me about green pastures and still waters. Teach me about the priorities of the kingdom. If you're a saint here today, I pray that God's light will encourage you, you'll have hope and fresh power from heaven and just take it one day at a time. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Thank you, Father. We're so grateful. We just want to take a moment to just let that word 
move down into our souls. We want to see how you might tell us to respond to it. Would you renew hope? Would you renew love? Would you renew passion in this room? Thank you for coming on that rescue mission, oh, oh Lord. Thank you for entering into our dark world. You're the king of light, the king of glory. And we just want to say we love you and we thank you for dealing with the death issue, for raising from the dead so that we could have light even in the face of our mortality. We have the hope of the kingdom of light. Pray you bring comfort to some souls here that are wrestling with these very issues at this very moment. That you bring light and hope and comfort to the reality of a kingdom that will last forever. We love you, Lord. I ask your blessing upon these precious people, and I ask it in Messiah Jesus' name. Amen.